Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. In season 11 of the podcast, we are exploring resilience, failure and forgiveness, leadership, belonging, and a variety of other topics that when done properly will help us perform our best. Today's guest is the incredibly bright and thoughtful Charlotta Siegman. She's a founding member of the Center for AI Risk and Impacts and an economics PhD candidate at MIT. In our conversation, Charlotta and I talk about the true dangers of AI, how it can benefit humanity, ideas for how AI should be regulated, and how the decisions we make today have the potential to affect many generations to come. We also discuss how the taxation of AI and robots could fund social programs and be a source for universal basic income. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Charlotta, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you. Tell us where you're from, what your education is, and what your interests are in the field of artificial intelligence. Yeah, so right now I'm a PhD student in economics at uh, MIT, and I'm also a founding member of uh, the Center for AI Risks and Impacts. We are a Berlin-based think tank working on AI policy, communications, advising kind of AI regulation in Germany as well as Europe. And in the past, I, yeah, I started kind of out in German and European politics, entered in an, and for instance, interned in the European Parliament, and then uh, worked for two years uh, in, at the Global Priorities Institute in Oxford. So we do research on how to, yeah, I guess. So the Global Priorities Institute at Oxford University does research on questions that are often overlooked in economics, like the welfare of future generations or the welfare of animals. And we want to answer the question, how should someone who wants to do like the most good with their resources, how should they make decisions? To what extent should they focus on future generations or particularly bad catastrophes such as future pandemics? And in my work there, but also previously, I worked on AI governance questions. So how should we as a society kind of optimally govern the risks and opportunities and, and various changes that come from generally capable AI systems? That is what happens if systems like GPT-4 further scale and, and become much more capable in the future. Well, we're going to talk a lot about AI today and the risks of AI, the benefits of AI, how it should be regulated. And let's just start with the risks. Could you talk about some of the risks that, in your opinion, have been greatly exaggerated? So there are various uh, risks from the potential development of transformative AI. And they include the misuse question. Like, suppose we have these generally capable AI systems that are, for instance, much better than humans at developing bioweapons. Could someone in the basement just use them to produce bioweapons? The second question is one about misalignment. Will the systems actually do what we want them to do? For example, we already have AI systems broadly de uh, deployed in our technology, in our world. And these are recommendation systems, right? So the big uh, algorithms in social media that recommend you content. And in some sense, we failed to align them with society's broader interests, right? Right now, Elon Musk makes most of the decisions of how Twitter is regulated, or and we, we don't really know. We, yeah, we have recommendation systems that kind of recommend us 
things that we like in the moment or that make us stay longer on the platform. But we have no idea whether that's actually what makes me like the happiest person or the most fulfilled person in the long run. And so that's an example of a misalignment failure. No one knows. And maybe also some people are not incentivized to actually build the technology with the goals that would we as a society actually want. There are various other risks from artificial intelligence for kind of common well-being. And it's a question of how this, for instance, influences military operations and the effects on inequality and the labor market, but also questions on kind of our epistemic landscape. Like if you are able to perfectly mimic a human which we might kind of reach with the future large language model generations. What does this mean for kind of online discourse or for the working of our democracy? Or what does this mean for someone who might want to use them to kind of do broad scale disinformation campaigns? How do you see humanity benefiting from AI's further development? I think what we could be seeing is like a lot of breakthroughs when it comes to kind of healthcare and, and like science development. And using that technology to just, in some sense, AI is really just like a prediction technology. Like you train a system on a particular data set to kind of tease apart various clusters and to become really good at predicting and picking up like very small threads that human eyes wouldn't even be able to pick up. Like what could we do really if we just see a data set with like a billion entries or something like that? Sam Altman or OpenAI often say that when they develop sufficiently intelligent or capable systems, they want to use it to solve all other problems in the world. So like climate change and diseases and so on and so forth. And then I ask myself, will they actually do it? Like what will be the competitive situations in these uh, cases if you want to use these systems to solve climate change? Will someone pay you to do this? How will you be able to get all the chips and all the resources if you want to use your systems to solve climate change or um, eradicate extreme poverty? Because arguably there aren't that many people who, who pay for this. But there might be other services that get you much more money. So when we realize, oh, one builds this, this generally capable AI systems and society managed to make them safe, then the next question becomes, what do we want to use that technology for? Which I think is an important governance question. It shouldn't just be led to yeah, the decisions of the key tech companies or kind of the competitive dynamics we find ourselves in. Some of the scenarios that I have heard related to artificial intelligence is that we are going to be living in this world of abundance. And then I've heard other people saying AI is going to be transformative, but there will be very few winners and many, many losers and that's a huge difference, right? Abundance for everybody, for all humans, and then a few winners and losers or people dominating the space. What are the economics of AI going to be? Or, you know, I'm assuming that they can go to either point in the, in the spectrum or at any point in between. Yes. So I think that this is ultimately a po policy question or a question of, how good we can regulate technology and who will make the decisions rather than an economic one. But we can say some things about the kind of labor effects or that it's a question of what 
returns are there to all of the capital owners and what returns are there to people who provide their labor in the job market. And what is important to notice here is that many more people provide labor and like cap because everyone can work or most people work, but capital is much more unequally distributed than the labor power. And so when we study, so we want to study what returns are there to labor and what returns are there to capital. And then this tells us something about the inequality effects of, of technology. And so the, so the labor share, like the returns to labor, the monetary returns to labor should go down or should go to zero in the very long run. But what we don't know is what happens to the monetary, like labor share in the medium term. So I think the question of like there be abundance is also one of human psychology. There's this very famous economist who a hundred years ago posed the question or the statement basically in a paper saying in a hundred years we will live in this immense abundance. We will have all of these things, right? You could work only like two days. You could have so much free time. And in some sense, he was right. We have a lot of stuff today. But in some sense, he was also really wrong because most people still don't live in abundance and people still work a lot because they want more, more stuff. I think you would agree with me that more abundance is possible. AI, as just one example, will make us more, much more efficient as a country globally, how we use our resources. Just that one example. And then if you start to look at clean energy development and how we're using energy and energy storage and all of these different innovations that are happening right now or have already happened, greater abundance is absolutely possible. No doubt about that. I think the key AI governance question is here, but what will we use this technology for and how can we make like truly democratic decisions on this? So it's like, you can, if you have all of this ability to produce, like who is making decisions for the, about this? How can you subsidize, incentivize such that most of the AI sector is producing goods that are actually, like that humans actually want, that humans actually need, no matter whether the kind of market powers are like optimizing for this. And, and how do you solve that question of like the direction of technological change in a world that is so complex, right? You don't, you can't have just someone deciding with a spreadsheet of like what should happen, but you need to kind of, yeah, aggregate all of the information of all these small little actors and like figure out what, yeah, what kind of figure out together what, what we want to use this immense ability for. So that's a great segue to regulation, which we wanted to talk about. How should we be thinking about AI regulation? Yeah, maybe maybe we shouldn't be thinking about AI regulation, but just like the, the all the puzzle pieces that of regulation that are related to AI. So there's the puzzle piece of how to make uh, safety out. So there's the puzzle piece of how to make sure that Companies building AI systems, build safe AI systems, explainable AI systems, predictable AI systems, and are liable for their development. That's something we've done for all other sectors before. And right now, governments are still kind of struggling of how to regulate, especially big tech companies, like successfully. That is, how do we regulate all the big algorithms used by the kind of big six, seven companies? How would we have auditors checking? 
whether the new generation of large language models are like explainable, predictable, aligned with like humanity's values. And how do we build that stream of regulation? An example for that regulation might be the EU AI Act that is kind of in negotiation in Europe. But then there are many other puzzle pieces of the whole field of AI regulation. That is how to distribute the benefits of AI systems, how to decide what they're used for, or suppose we one day develop sufficiently strong AI systems such that we decide to kind of undeploy potential technology or stop the development for a certain period to, for instance, solve key safety challenges. How would this regulatory piece, puzzle, or possibility like work? Uh, so these are some pieces of, of AI regulation. You've mentioned puzzle pieces, benefit, distribution, safety. What are some other of these important puzzle pieces that you're thinking about? Yeah, I think another important puzzle piece that I wish more people would be thinking about is the question of, is the algorithm really doing what I wanted it to do? Maybe to draw the analogy to recommendation algorithms like Twitter or Facebook. I think as a society, we are not asking ourselves in like the question in like a, um, of like, what do I really want? Like if I could decide this recommendation algorithm in a way that would be best for me, for me in the long run to achieve my long-term goals, what should it be? You and as an individual? Yeah, you as an individual, but also we as a group or as a network of individuals, as a community, as a culture, as a world population. And so there's this whole question of like, is the algorithm really doing the thing we wanted it to do? Which is an almost philosophical question. And so one of the examples is with recommendation algorithms. There were many, um, so if we might want to have these institutions that look very carefully with like many, many people on these algorithms and uh, reflect on whether they actually do achieve our goals. Should we be thinking about AI regulation at the country level, or should there be some sort of global governing body or regulatory body? What, what's your opinion on that? How do you think about that? Should AI regulation be at the national or regional level or at the global level? Yeah, so I think the national regional decision or even the local one is the right one. You just like we don't have big functioning international institutions. We don't have a world parliament or something like that. Most of your regulatory capacity is at the national or local level, and we need to use that one for AI regulation. Also, different uh, regions have different needs, different preferences, different safety preferences. So you want to do most of the regulation at the national or regional level. However, I think you're pointing out a really important fact about AI, and that is the observation that like, the fair, the beneficial, the safe development of artificial intelligence is a global public good. What does this mean? It's like climate change or overfishing, where you're kind of a country can free ride, right? Like if you invest in safe AI systems or fair AI systems, others also profit. If you do kind of corner cutting, then not only will you feel the consequences of your corner cutting as a country or as a region, but other people around the globe will also feel the repercussion. And because the fair and the beneficial and safe development of AI 
is such a global public good, you kind of need, the, the states need to hold themselves accountable and commit or penalize themselves for this free riding in the same way as countries sometimes hold themselves accountable to like reduce carbon emissions together. So ideally what you want is these national bodies, local regional bodies regulating AI within their borders, but then them coming together on an international stage and holding them accountable. Like for instance, having so, like holding themselves accountable to minimal rules or penalizing each other if they fail to do them or withdrawing certain benefits in the AI supply chain if various actors like don't fulfill fulfill their commitments. You talked about a little bit about bias earlier in the conversation and I want to ask you about getting underrepresented or people who are not represented at all involved and engaged in the regulation here and I'm thinking about you know there are countries where these technologies are being created and then there are countries that are using these technologies or people within these countries and I can only imagine how helpless some of these countries might be and people within these countries might be when it comes to these technologies and their use. What's what's the future vision in terms of regulation and getting their involvement and getting their input in how AI is, is created and used in the future? Yeah, many questions, and I'm not sure I have answers to all of them, but yeah, they're important questions. And I'm we were talking earlier about like abundance and, and the fact that we haven't shared that. And that obviously now also affects the development of AI in a sense of if you have many different regions or different communities in the same city with really different like amounts of resources available to them, then that poses this like huge challenge of how do we engage everyone in the questions of what AI systems should be developed at what times for whom and who should profit for them and how should they design to be. And I want to stress that problem. I, and I don't think there are many people that have like yet really good answers to these questions. I think there's, there's, there's the question of like, who do we engage with on the international realm, for instance? And the UK is now hosting their first... AI safety summit and there have been big discussions about which countries to invite and um, should you only invite kind of like UK allies or also countries from the global south or China and, and who do we engage with internationally. But then there's also the question of like, how do we actually manage that many people in within one country who might know less about the technology are able to engage in the question of how it should address, how it should affect them. And the first step is, yeah, the only, the two things I want to point out here is like, the first one is probably education, whether that is like about policymakers or uh, people is like, the technology, it, people can understand the technology. They're amazing videos online explaining how these systems work. And maybe I want to encourage more people to like engage with them. And then there's also the question of, do we build the platforms and, and communities where many people, especially people who come from different backgrounds, can engage in this conversation of what they want algorithms and AI technology to look like 
And there's been some work by the Collective Intelligence Project on kind of alignment assemblies. Like together with OpenAI, they worked on how can many people feed into the process of how to design a chatbot? Like what should the chatbot say if we ask it, for instance, the question of who should I vote for next year in the US election? That's a hard question to answer. It could just like not say anything or it could provide neutral information, whatever that means. And so these alignment assemblies, so are one way of how yeah, various NGOs and open AI kind of answer the question of, of how to get democratic inputs. Maybe what is important here to point at is that here the democratic input comes at, comes at a really late stage, right? OpenAI decided what chatbot to build, which size the chatbot, chatbot should be. OpenAI like sells it, but we can, like the humans that are involved in this process, make, make the design questions of the chatbot. So I, I, I love the idea of these alignment assemblies as a kind of first step of noticing how much more large scale like democratic governance of, of the technology could look like. And it's the first step on, on this path. What advice do you have for business leaders or even leaders in government when it comes to AI? I think even if people are optimists and believe that, oh, with a 95% chance, things will go really great. The question is how to increase this to 99%, right? And to, and to do that, we just need much more distributed knowledge in our society about what are these various risks uh, of AI and how can I identify them, even if they're not very legible, and, and, and what, what forms could they take or how could they extremize in the future. So I think education on, on spotting, seeing these like potential long-run risks is like crucial. And then the second part is, I think, and that's maybe more of like a transforming team as a question about the individual. So I think like learning the skills of like using algorithms, generally capable AI systems responsibly as an individual, but also as an institution. So that's the question of like, when we deploy AI systems, do we actually do that? Like does knowing what we want from the algorithm, are we using it to solve a specified important problem that is actually important for humanity or do we just like do something with it? Do we, do we have someone in our institutions or do I check whether the algorithm is actually doing the thing we want? Like who is doing the, the auditing and the checking? Do we trust it too much? And does the system help me stay, still stay in control? So here's like maybe the use case of like GPT-4 or various other like large language models. Do people... Like we can use them to kind of learn much more and stay in control. But what also happens is that people just, you know, give a bunch of work to the uh, chatbot and hope that the chatbot does it for themselves. And I think these risks of like very responsible deployment at a very local scale become more important if we actually see large language models being like many, many orders of magnitude bigger in size than than current ones. And I expect that we will see this in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, so that like education and the kind of like, like learning the, the mental patterns of how do I do responsible deployment, I think are the, the very general ones that apply to almost all cases. 
Let me ask you a follow-up question on advice to business leaders. So having the capability to use various forms of AI, of course, that's going to be important. But then what are the complementary skills? Because one of the things that I've talked about and had other people talking about is, you know, what makes us human and how are we going to differentiate ourselves from the machines and emotional intelligence and empathy and compassion are some of these really important skills that people are going to need in order to separate themselves from the machines. Do you agree with that? I mean, what what sort of skills should business leaders be looking for when they're selecting people to work for their teams? Yeah, I liked your list. Maybe the other thing on the uh, list should be relationships. It's like plausibly human relationships and, and human networks become much more important in such a world. Yes. I don't know the answers about... I don't know what will happen to yeah, human compassion or like the empathy. I'm certainly hoping this will stay a very useful human task. But there are these early results where people used... There are these early results where people kind of applied current kind of state-of-the-art language models in a medical setting. And people were asked whether they preferred the kind of that side like support by the chatbot or by an actual human doctor. And and we see these differences where, oh, the thing the chatbot is so much better than the human is maybe exactly that that part of just like being able to listen. That's arguably less so because the humans can't do it and much more because the human have like just like limited time and a lot of other stress and overhead. But I think there's this question of to what extent do we want to outsource this kind of emotional work to AI systems and to what extent do we allow it to be outsourced to AI systems? I, w- I just want to stress that this is a, a, a variable that, that humanity and various societies and, and groups need to decide on. And, and I don't know how it will pan out. Values are really, really important related to AI development. And there's this concept of values lock that I really wasn't familiar with, but you correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially if we're creating AI today that will be used for generations to come, there is the potential that we're going to lock and develop uh, this AI using the values that we have today. So values of the United States or maybe Europe or other parts of the world. But we know that our values change over time. So for example, slavery was an accepted practice in many parts of the world and it is not accepted in almost all of the world right now. And so, you know, what is the importance of values right now? And could you talk about the implications around the potential of values lock? Yeah, so you're referring to this like value lock-in question. So the observation that sometimes as a human species, we make decisions that de facto not only kind of abide, so that we as a human species, we make decisions that not only kind of 
frame our decisions for the coming years, but also frame and potentially oblige future generations to certain decisions. And an example of such lock-ins are constitutions, where some people that designed a constitution in the beginning had this outsized influence on how people reason about morality and norms, legality, principles to strive for, where we see that in different contexts so different countries, people put different stuff into the constitutions and that even up until today kind of frames the way people talk about big societal challenges or moral dilemmas. Mm, I guess I'm most familiar with kind of, yeah, differences in the moral dialogues between Germany and the US. Uh, and you see the fact that, yeah, people reason very differently, for instance, about freedom versus moral dignity. And so if maybe how you should see kind of the development of very advanced AI systems is that if we outsource as a, as a society a lot of decisions to these systems, we need to give them a kind of constitution, like a thing, rules to abide for. And interestingly, uh, Anthropic, so the large language model company, one of the competitors of OpenAI, did exactly that. So they gave their chatbot a constitution, they call that constitutional AI, and they kind of write down all the values the AI should abide by. And so suppose they kind of continue with that approach and we actually build systems that kind of try to do all the decision-making for us and they get more and more capable, then this question of who decides and what kind of systems to put, what kind of values to put into this constitution becomes a like, really important one and, and a non-trivial one similarly to other kind of important value lock-ins we had in the past. You spoke at the ninth Oxford workshop on global priorities research. You gave a presentation called Speaking for the Billions to Come, Estimating the Effect of Future Representatives in Politics. And I just love this idea of thinking out hundreds of years or even thousands of years. And as you know, Will McCaskill's book has really shaped my thinking about the future. His book is What We Owe the Future. And I hadn't been thinking about the potential of humanity lasting another million years, but he certainly makes the case for that. And it seems like you're making the case for it as well. But my question is, how should we be thinking about future generations when we're voting or designing our technologies or making other decisions that determine how future generations will live? Yes. So the interesting observation about democracy is that often people say, oh, what is democracy? Democracy is the rule by the people, like by everyone who is affected by the decisions. But in some sense, this is not the case, right? Like in order to uh, vote in the United States or in, in most other countries, you need to be at least of a certain age, maybe 18. You need to be a human. Like if you're an animal, you can't vote, even though you are clearly affected by decisions. If you are not a citizen, you can't vote. And if you're not yet born, you can't vote, but clearly you are affected by these decisions. So in some sense, we only have a really small group of the people who are affected by decisions that have a say in the decisions. And so the hard question becomes, how do we include the other, insofar as we believe everyone who is affected should have a say, how do we include the people who can't vote? And so that was the question I'm still very much interested in and that I addressed back then at the, at the workshop, which is the question of like, given that you only have the people who are alive today, 
how can we design the, the room such that they can become effective representatives of future generations? So one option would be to just yeah. make a person, make a separate election for a future representative. So each one of us gets two votes. For one of them, we vote for the normal representatives. And for the other one, we vote for a future representative. So you vote, but you are told that your vote should represent what you think future people want. And so in that sense, we have we can have a discussion and a lot of disagreement about what future people want because we will have a lot of disagreement about this. But people can take their responsibility seriously of using that vote for future people and not for themselves. Uh, but And we make everyone think really hard about what, what future people actually want. So that was one of the proposals that I um, yeah, researched and, and tried to further understand it in my past work. So the question of, can you do something like that? Can you give everyone or part of, uh, of our society the role of thinking about future representatives? And if yes, that, does that lead to any problems? Like, does that mean that they might use their previous votes, the vote they had all along, in a less altruistic manner? So do we see some kind of moral crowding out? I think that this is like one of the open questions when it comes to the design of such future generation institutions. But I think the main insight is the question of like, even though they are not here and we clearly can't include them in a straightforward manner, are there ways we can frame the conversation such that we can include them? We could, for instance, both sit here now and tell ourselves, okay, suppose we were both our grand-grandchildren, right? So our children that are great-grandchildren that are born in 100 years or in 80 years, suppose we wanted to represent their interests. What do we think they need? What do we think they want? Looking back at the decision we made today, which of these options would they prefer and why? And I think the key question, if institutions can make any progress here, then it is because they allow us to ask these questions that we usually don't ask ourselves. One of the things that I've been thinking about for the last several years, and it's really been a topic that I haven't heard a lot discussed here in the U.S. Uh, I had a conversation with a good friend of mine in Germany on one of my more recent visits, and that is uh, the taxation of robots and taxation of AI and what sort of possibilities there are as we think about shifting demographics. What have you seen in terms of conversations about this? Because I'm thinking about, about our social systems, healthcare for the elderly, and, and these sorts of things that have been typically taxes put on workers. Do you see robots and AI having some sort of tax on them for the work that they're doing? human capital is being taxed, right? But if you replace the human by the robot, who is maybe as efficient and as costly as the human, you don't need to pay any taxes. So then as a, as a CEO, I have these additional incentives to replace humans with robots because of the tax advantage. But maybe as a society, we don't actually want that. Like we, that replacement isn't optimal. So we don't want to incentivize it. And so the idea of robot taxes was originally developed 
to as a solution to point out that problem. Wait a minute. If the human and the robot is equally good, maybe we want to keep the human. And so we need to tax robots because we're also taxing labor. And so that's that's where the robot taxation idea originally comes from. I have many questions among them about it. I have many questions about robot taxation that are not really answered. Number one, what is the unit of a robot? Is a washing machine like some really old technology? A robot clearly just like some things look to us like robots just because they're new and so they're kind of automation. But then once they're really old, like we don't think about the laundry machine as a robot, right? Um, or some other technology that is now over yeah, many, many, many decades old. So one could see robot taxes or maybe more adequately kind of AI dividends compute taxations or taxing the AI compute um, as a way of addressing that, that labor inequality question. So the idea is here that the current cutting edge models are kind of relying on three AI inputs. And the three AI inputs are data algorithms, so kind of the structure of training and the internal architecture of the models, and number three, AI compute. And AI compute is what makes this development so immensely costly. Like OpenAI has, and all the other big companies, spend a lot of money on getting the current cutting-edge chips. And so one way the taxation angle could take would be to kind of tax the AI compute that is needed to build bigger models. And you could do this for purely redistributive kind of revenue questions. But if we consider the kind of general question of like, as a society, we can cap and we can tax various inputs, uh, you can also use this to yeah, shift AI development to more socially beneficial endeavors. So what is the idea here? We also tax carbon emission because carbon emissions, you can produce them, but you also cause costs to others. And so if we believe that certain AI usages will be socially beneficial or socially harmful, we can tax the underlying compute differently. That would be one idea. So a lot of the compute, actually OpenAI uses more compute for running GPT-4 and providing it to all its users than it did to train it at the first place. So ideally, and now I'm kind of thinking about future scenarios, one could decide, wow, using this big, very expensive AI compute for cutting edge models to like solve climate change or make progress in medical applications. Probably this doesn't make you rich, but it's like really good. Like lots of other people will profit from it. Then there are other use cases that are much more uh, zero sum, like improvements in finance. I'm not sure or improvements in military technology. I'm not sure whether we, can, we all get better off or whether it's more like a, a, a race situation. And so what you could do then would be to tax these different use cases differently. Like you're trying to make the um, individual internalize these externalities. And so that would mean that if you're providing, if you're using AI for these social beneficial use cases, you could be taxed much less or I, or the social planner could even like subsidize the AI compute, so that really expensive input. And so I think the thing I want to stress is that there's this hard question to ask about, like, what are we taxing or capping? Which input or the provision? Or maybe you don't even want to tax the deployment of the technology, but you want to tax the development 
like once GPTN, so any kind of model exists, we just let it freely develop. But we want to tax and cap the development. Like we want to, as a society, make sure we are kind of developing at a, at a smooth rate. And so one could also look at uh, taxation of, of the development that is the training compute rather than the, the inference compute. Mm. Yeah. So the, as a society, we have used like economic mechanisms. So this is like quantity caps as well as price mechanisms for revenue distribution, but also for yeah, adjusting various market failures. And, and so we could use it for both of these purposes, for redistribution and for market failures in the case of AI. That's one of the central points in the universal basic income movement, right, is our redistribution based on potential taxes from robots and AI. And ideally, maybe here to stress the universal basic income point, I think, and many people have pointed this out before, if you want to do redistribution, you really want to make sure the redistribution grows in proportion with the total pie. Like if I give everyone $1,000 per month, but that doesn't scale as we get more and more abundance, that's horrific. Like your society does not work anymore. It's like unclear to me that a democracy can be sustained if some people stay at a thousand while others get much, much, much more rich, much richer. And so the question here becomes, can you redistribute in a way that ensures like it really locks in the character of the redistribution? That is the fact that redistribution scales with size. And so if you're taxing a kind of input or if you are you just as a society redistribute the equity of the companies, you have a much bigger cha chance that you, yeah, that the redistribution grows in size. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you about the Center for AI Risk and Impacts. It's a it's an organization that you co-founded called Cura. Why did you start it, and what's the mission of the organization? So Cura stands for the uh, Center for AI Risks and Impacts, and we are a Berlin-based think tank that has worked on public communications about AI risks and opportunities in Germany. We have provided education to like German policymakers on AI that is run like AI bootcamp, where we explain various risks, AI trajectories and AI governance solutions to kind of political Berlin. And so our overall mission is to make sure that the transition of AI development goes as well as possible and that primarily involves, yeah, policy advocacy, policy consulting, as well as public and, and policy education on these questions. And I'm particularly excited to contribute to this mission because most of my research is like more theoretical or maybe more focused on like future, future scenarios. But I think it's incredibly important to kind of connect this back to the political decisions that we are making today, like in 2023 on all of the decisions, for instance, in the EU AI Act or, or the Digital Service Act in the EU. Charlotta, thank you for your time today and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to the Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. We will return next week with a conversation with Christian Ron, whose experience includes working at Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. 
Christian and I talk about how he and Normative, the company he founded 10 years ago, are working to stop the unabated carbon emissions behind climate change. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.